0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Sydney, Australia, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking today with Frankie de la Cretes, who is a sports journalist whose work focuses on the intersection of sport and gender, and they are the co-author of an absolutely fabulous book, um, one that I have just it kind of blew my mind a little bit and I, i'll explain a little bit in a second um but they're the co-author of this of a book with lindsay Darkangelo called hail mary the rise and fall of the national women's football league it's out with bold type books in 2021 uh, it's a definite uh, a buyer from my point of view so i encourage people listening to do so uh, but this book blew my mind frankie i have to say because I grew up in the area where a good part of this book takes place and I'm a sports historian and I had no idea that any of this had happened. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how, first of all, what the book is about and how you developed this project, how you even heard of the national women's football league.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. You are not the only person who had never heard of this league. It's um, a book is about Um, the National Women's Football League, which was the first professional women's football league in U.S. history, um, and it existed from 1974 to 1988, um, roughly, um, and as far as we know, it is the first, um, kind of, uh, really comprehensive history, uh, documented of, of the NWFL, um. And honestly, it feels as a journalist and a sports writer, this book, it feels like it's one of those once in a career kind of stories where I couldn't believe that this history hadn't really been told yet. Um, I kept like expecting that I would discover that somebody else had written this, um, but really they hadn't. And the project developed sort of by accident um. I met my co-author, Lindsay through a Facebook group for sports writers of marginalized genders and we were some of the only queer people in that group and kind of hit it off and became friends and Lindsay's a football writer and um, a football player and follows the sport and it is not one of the major sports on my beat Um, my familiarity with football culture is is as a cheerleader um, growing up um, because if you grew up in the US you know football culture does touch almost everybody in in some way. Um, But yeah, it wasn't my main focus. Um, But a few years back, I was a columnist at the now defunct Bitch Magazine, um, writing feminist sports column. And I was writing about the current uh, state of women's football. A lot of people don't know in the U.S. there's anywhere between three to five um, semi-professional women's tackle football leagues um, at any time. And because I'm a nerd who cares a lot about history and context and things like that, um, when I was writing that column, I I went looking for a book that would tell me about the history of the women's game, assuming that it would exist. And um, it did not exist. There was a bunch of books about how women could learn the game of football so they could watch it with their husbands on Sundays. But um, yeah, aside from a book that mostly documented like game statistics, it's, it's like an encyclopedia. Um, there just wasn't a book and I was complaining to Lindsay about it. And she was like, well, you should write it. And I said, well, I don't really know that much about football. If I write a book about football, you have to write it with me. And it was a joke. And um, <laughs> the next week I went to see a mutual friend of ours and I'm telling her, she's also a sports writer, and I'm telling her about this joke. And she's like, oh, well, my agent would really like that. And so suddenly we were agented for a project that did not exist. Um and the first draft of this book that we thought was going to be you know just the, the history of women's football um did not sell we actually didn't sell the book and it was a much more generalized history of women's place in the game from like on the field and coaching and officiating and as fans and all of those things and um over the course of that research we we discovered the NWFL and the only reason we discovered this This league is because of the Toledo Troopers, who, if you read the book, um, they are the winningest team in pro football history, men's or women's. To this day, they still hold that title. Um, And I also had another column going at the time at at Long Reads. And it was a sports history column. And I decided, I was like, oh, this is an interesting team. And I decided to kind of recreate the story of when the winningest team lost their first game. And so I started to do research and I'm like, there's all this stuff about the troopers being the winningest team, but like they must've been playing people, right? There must have been other teams in this league. And the more I read the, the clearer it became that actually the story in the book that we needed to write was the story of this league. Um, and it was kind of a pretty appealing thing to pitch. It's everyone loves a league of their own. And so it's basically a league of their own, but football in the 70s. So um, it it really, I, I think, was compelling off the jump. And that's how this project ended up coming about. I know it's a long like, way to get there, but I do like to talk about it because I think talking about books um as a kind of a culmination of ideas and also as like failed projects like we didn't sell the first version of this book that we tried to sell and i always think that talking about our failures is just as important as our successes well I, i'm trying to
0: imagine because this book has such a particular it, um I mean that in a, in a good way like a particular and, and it kind of leads to a question i wanted to ask in a second anyway but it kind of particular focus on the people in this league and it's it's several parts in the book you write about kind of how actually if you just tried to focus on the the numbers and the statistics if you only read the newspapers the picture that you would get of this league would be completely different than actually the picture that that you all paint and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you how you actually did the work of discovering these teams. I mean, it must've been, uh, clearly only journalists could do it. Historians are too lazy, I think, to do what must've been a huge number of interviews and traveling and <laughs> historians, we like our archives <laughs> too much. <laughs> But yeah, so how did, like, how did you actually like recover this history, which had been lost? And if we only looked at the newspapers would only be kind of one thing.
1: I mean, I'll say that I, we consider this to be a partial history as well, because def- yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We estimate, you know, that there was at least 12 teams um over the course of more than a decade. And I mean, hundreds, if not over a thousand players and There was not only no way to track all of those people down, but a book can only be so long. (laughs) And there was a point when we kind of had to just call it and hope that putting this out there and acknowledging that it is the beginning and that other people hopefully will pick up the torch. And um, about a year after our book came out, a book was published on just the troopers, um, by Steve Guinan. It's called We Are the Troopers. And I love that these books can be companions to each other. Um, and he can dive deeper on like one of the teams than we were able to do. Um, But the way we did a lot of this research, and I will say one of my biggest, like, regrets is the wrong word. Disappointments is, is a better one because it was nobody's fault. But we reported a uh, large part of this book during COVID. And so um, there were newspaper archives that were not digitized that we had planned to go access as well as um, meet some of these women in person and kind of go to some of the cities and get a feel for them as well. And that research, that on-the-ground research, was not able to be done just because it was really in the at the height of the pandemic. Um, and so that was a shame. Um, but to answer the question you asked the way we really tracked these players down was we started with the archives and the newspapers and the things that were digitized and when you read the stories um you know once you have one team name and you you go through their newspaper archives their opponents are listed and so you have team names that's how you start gathering team names and player names and then you start tracking those players down and looking for the, you know, newspaper stories on those teams and, and gathering more opponents and more player names. And just little by little, the dominoes start to fall. And um, once you track the players down, there was kind of always one team that had almost like an unofficial historian. There was always the one person who had the shoebox in the closet with literally everything. Um and so you had the players who didn't save anything and barely remembered anything. And then you found, when you found the player, the one with the stash, you were really lucky. Um, and so the players themselves were really just like instrumental in helping us piece this together. Um, and then it becomes like a combination of their memories, their stories, the things you read in the newspaper, which um, for reasons we discuss in the book. We take with a grain of salt on some level. Um, You know, scores are usually pretty accurate. Play-by-play is usually pretty accurate, but the context and, and quotes were a little bit more challenging. But, you know, you combine that and look at the programs and all of that. It's like piecing a puzzle together. Um, I have a scene. There's a scene in the book um, where the troopers get in an on-field fight with the um, Detroit demons who are their, like, rivals. And that fight scene took me 2 years to piece together because the players remembered it one way and the players' memories that the teams had played each other twice in the same month and so those or like in a matter of weeks actually and so those games had run together and so their memories of a score was like wrong and then the newspapers were so caught up on writing about the fight that they hadn't even written like the final score of the game And so it was like a two-year process of piecing that together to be able to actually know which game the fight had occurred during. Um, So it was like, yeah, it was a lot of that. But I think once you start to find one thing and one person, um, you know, everything opens up pretty quickly.
0: As as an historian, one of the things I really liked about the book, I mean, it's clearly written in a very readable way. And I think um, we can... Chat. I, we could chat in a minute about the some of the organization. Although it's mostly chronological, but that first part is maybe that long reads piece. Then <laughs> where you're trying to talk about that. Yeah, because I really loved that introduction to to it. Um, but then throughout, you all are very clear discuss discussing the limitations of the sources that you have, the limitations of memories, the limitations of newspapers. Uh, the missed opportunities like people still looking for this film of was this a successful point after kick or not <laughs> it's like this Zapruder film everyone's looking for it. it So it was really um i thought that that was really uh, great and i could see since many of our listeners are you know teach classes on um sports history like i could see this book being really useful in a class where you're actually trying to discuss the limitations of sources Because you all discussed that quite clearly.
1: Yeah. So the introduction to the book, like, I'm, I'm glad you, you like it. And it was really intentional actually to start where we start. Um, We start like in gameplay, we start on the field. um, And that was really important to us because we knew that just by nature of the fact that we were writing about women playing football, people have a bias um, about the fact that this is not a women's sport. Women can't play football. They don't play football. And so we felt it was really important to set them up as football players from the beginning. And so when you meet them on the field and you meet them in a game and the first thing you see them do is execute a play um, and actually play the game, you don't have to doubt whether or not they're going to be able to do it because you already know they can because we've shown you. And so that was a very intentional way of starting the book. We never wanted the reader to doubt that these women can and did play football and play well. Um but yeah, the the source material was really interesting because you know, I'm not a trained historian, but I'm a huge history nerd and like I have done um I had done previous to this I had um, done some work that actually ended up influencing the the Amazon series, a league of their own that just came out. Um, I wrote the piece that started to really identify a lot of the players that had been queer and I did that using their obituaries um, and what's you know interesting about that is we read things through the modern lens and then we interpret them through the lens we have with like what we know about language and things at the time. And we're not always going to be, you know, totally accurate, but it was a similar thing, right. When we're in this case, (laughs) it wasn't an obituary. I actually could speak to some of the women who had been interviewed and what became incredibly clear. What I knew before I spoke to any of the women was that the coverage was sexist, right? Like, That was just very, very clear. Um, You know, the women were, the way they played was, you know, just disparaged and their looks were always discussed and just any sexist stereotype you can think of was leveraged at these players. And something I think about a lot in my writing and as a journalist and someone of marginalized identity who writes about people with marginalized identities is I think a lot about power and I think a lot about storytelling and I think a lot about the lens through which stories are told and I know that if I can look at the byline of this this male sports writer who is writing this story what I know he's trained to do is do a a gamer and have a play-by-play and like describe the football on the field the football play on the field but he's not necessarily trained to have unpacked his biases about women and what they can do, particularly in the 70s when this was happening. And so that worldview and that, like, that's going to taint everything that that this person writes. And um, then when you would talk to the players and they would tell you how they felt about that coverage, but not only that, they'd tell you that, like, they wholesale made up quotes because sometimes you'd read – you'd read the quotes from the players and you were you would wonder like you know some people have internalized sexism we all do right like and so some of that was going to come out regardless some of the answers you're like what question are these women being asked what kind of leading question are they being asked that this is the answer that they're they're giving to the newspaper and then it turned out when i talked to some of the women they were like i never said any of those things but we didn't complain because we needed the press so badly and so once that happens you're like, "Oh, cool. The only sources I have of archival like material is newspapers, and now I don't even know how accurate they are." And that calls into question kind of everything, but what's useful about questioning like the accuracy and and like, validity of certain parts of it is it also tells you something about the time that they were written, and that is useful too. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I I like I say I'm, I I I read a lot of uh, read a lot of sports histories, and I'm a I'm an historian, and I'm not a journalist <laughs> in any way. Um, although um, I I I was really impressed; like I I thought the book was great um, in that respect. And so, hearing you talk about it now, I, I can I can tell where it's come from. So I guess you know, for people who actually want to hear more of, about women's football and not just my my things about kind of process and um, maybe you can start off, Frankie, and tell us a little bit about what are the origins of women's football, and then where does um, where does your book kind of you know because you've got the first part two of history, which is really quite I mean it's history 1896 to 1970, but then you've got the next part about the birth of the NWFL. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how are women playing football in that long period and then where does the National Women's Football League start to emerge?
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that women have been playing football for as long as football has existed. Um, However, you know, women playing what is, like, largely considered to be... A men's or like masculine sport has meant that they have also been like trying to play and also kept away from playing kind of um, always. And when women historically have been allowed to play, often it was like treated as a gimmick. Um, so they'd be allowed to play um, so that men could, like, laugh at them or, like, as entertainment for a men's sh- social ball. Or um, you would see that women would be allowed to play because nobody took it very seriously or thought they'd be any good. And then when the women actually wanted to play, which is what happens when you invite women to play a sport, they come out and they actually want to play, then all of these, like, the dorian era of anxieties about women's bodies and health and like the like paternalistic need to protect women from themselves like comes into play and they're shut down right um there's all of these fears that you know if women get tackled they're gonna get breast cancer their uterus is gonna fall out all of this stuff that any anyone who studies history like knows that um these attitudes exist and they oft they and they impact sports and women's involvement in sports and so all of that really like is the story I would say if I had to sum up kind of the history of women playing football from 18 you know 96 through I'd say the even to the N- NWFL it was you know men thought it would be a joke and then the women really came to play <laughs> and um it was often really framed as a gimmick and so, but it's interesting, you know, you look in the 30s, there was a spread in like Time Magazine of women playing football and it was always framed as a new thing. That's the other thing. It's always framed as new. Um, it's not new. Women's sports are still framed as new. They're not new, but that is, that is you know, they're framed as this like novelty. And so in the 60s, you have um, a man named Sid Friedman who was... Um, kind of a, he was a promoter, I guess I would call him, um, from Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. And um, what is fascinating about Sid and something we we talk at length when we talk about, like, complicated narratives and things like that is Sid Friedman is the reason that the NWFL exists. And Sid Friedman, because of the NWFL, like, women got the opportunity to play pro football and, you know, um, opportunities to play sports. But Sid Friedman was not a feminist. (laughs) Sid Friedman saw um, an opportunity to make money. And so he pitched this idea of women playing um, football, kind of in like a barnstorming, Harlem Trotters-esque type vibe um, against men's teams, Um, again, as a gimmick. And so he held tryouts and again the women showed up and actually wanted to play and actually could play and that's when he realized that maybe he could have women's teams playing against each other and so Sid Friedman really for a long time tried to get a pro league um off the ground and several of the teams that ended up um, being in the NWFL started as teams that were owned by Sid Friedman and that includes the Toledo Troopers um you know, Sid Friedman. Again, when we talk about how accurate the um the archival stuff is, he was like very um like he was an exaggerator. He would say whatever he needed to say to get his funding and money and people to pay attention to whatever his latest venture was. And so he gives these quotes about like deals with the NFL and like the thousands of people that came to the games and all of the teams he was going to launch. And like, we just don't know like how accurate any of that, that is. Um, but like he tried, it's really interesting. Some former NFL players coached some of those teams that he was trying to start. And they were black men who were shut out of coaching opportunities in in the NFL. And they coached in this league. You know, the first black coaches in pro football were, were actually in, in this league. Um so anyway, what happened was I think Sid Sid was unsuccessful ultimately in launching a league, both because I think he was trying to own too many teams. Um and he just, like, didn't have the funding or the ability to really, like, oversee that many teams. But the other thing he really did not count on was the women really wanting to be taken seriously. He would do things like send a hustler photographer to a practice without telling the players. And the guy would, like, want to get under center and take photos. Um and the women were like horrified rightfully um, you know he pitched the idea of them playing in tearaway skirts things like that and um, you know they really they were not about it and so what began to happen is there were some independent um, teams kind of fledgling around the country and then there was several teams that were owned by SId and um, they ended up coming together to form the NWFL Um and that it's really like, you know, it's really impressive. One of the teams, the the Columbus um, pace setters, they were owned by Sid uh, Friedman and they they left because they wanted to be taken seriously. And they went under the ownership of the, uh, you know, the, the group that owned the, the troopers, which was also a group of men and they again didn't think they were being taken seriously enough and they formed their own corporation and bought themselves from the men that owned them. Um, they came from that. The women that started the pay centers were housing organizers together and they had organizing experience and they literally just like organized themselves um, and purchased themselves from the men. And like they, I think when I think about this league, it's like the men thought it was a joke, but the women made it real. And that's like, really how i would sum this up and um
0: that's really that's yeah go ahead no i was gonna say that really comes out in in the book um really well like there's uh always the kind of um complicated or very often there's the kind of complicated male organizers who want to control the game and and run it in a particular way but there's always the women who show up in their dozens Mm -hmm. and more to do the tryouts and really quickly like they start to to have their own ideas about how the games should be organized, how the team should be run. And I, I thought that was really a fascinating part of the work. But then also it it was a interesting to see the kind of background of a lot of the women who did come to play because sometimes it was really diverse um in terms of a place where people of different racial backgrounds could mix, but then also the origins of some of the teams in lesbian bars in places you wouldn't maybe expect, uh, though I don't have any particular knowledge of lesbian bars. So maybe I should, that's just my ignorance. Right. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about who are some of these women who show up when, when Sid Freeman says, Hey, let's get together and organize the team or when um, the dandelions in LA are forming, who are the women who come to play?
1: Yeah, I think that was what was remarkable about this league when we really started researching who the players were, because when people, again, we couldn't avoid comparisons to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which, again, is a league of their own, and that league um, was all white. Um, There were a few Cuban players um, in the league, but they were white Cubans, um, and, you know, black women were not allowed to play, and in this league, you know, it's a different. It's you know, um, it's a different generation and uh, a different era. But the level of diversity that we really saw was like racial diversity and cultural and ethnic diversity. Um, there was, you know, a really diverse mix of, um, like sexual orientation. There was, you know, probably the estimates from players was that anywhere from like 50 to 70% of their team was gay, but you also had stay at home moms and like, you know, hairdressers and you had women who worked in trades. We have like women who, some of the first women to like work corporate at at and We had women who was like the only woman at the cable company climbing telephone poles with men. <laughs> like, um, the, you know, the range of occupations was really, really wide. Um, As well, Um, age-wise, you had girls who were 17 years old playing alongside women in their 40s. Like, the level of diversity um, really surprised us. Um, I think what I will say, the uniting factor that a lot of these women had, a large number of them did come from, like, working class backgrounds. And I think there was a shared class history um, and class experience, Um, even if it wasn't exactly identical, because obviously a working class white person and a, um, a working class Black person are going to have different experiences. But there was some um element of kind of shared class experience that I think really translated. But what they really all had in common, no matter what, was that they were women who were doing something that they were told that women could not do and should not do. And so in that way, they were kind of united in this um, position of being kind of up against the world together. Um, and those bonds really ran deep for them. Um, but yes, there are teams, particularly the Dallas Blue Bonnets who formed in the lesbian bars in Dallas. Dallas had an incredibly robust lesbian bar scene in the 70s. Um, at one point there was five lesbian bars in Dallas. Um, And the thing about the history of queer bars is that they are, you know, gathering spaces um, and they are community spaces and particularly, um, you know, queer people still um, can be um, ostracized and cut off from their families of origin because they're queer, but that was even more likely in the past. And so this was like, it was family, it was home. And, um, a lot of sports leagues, particularly out of, you know, gay and lesbian bars, but like sports leagues has always kind of been a thing that organized a lot of softball leagues and things like that organized out of these bars. And so, um, in Dallas, the women saw the ad for tryouts in the newspaper, a good chunk of the team, a lot of the women that came out were, were in the bar together, um, one night and someone brought the ad in and they all played softball together, um, and decided that they would go try out together. And these bars were huge supporters of the league, too. Um, they would buy ad space in their programs as well. <coughs> Excuse me. But at the same time, you know, in Columbus, um, something that's not in the book that I, I learned when I talked to some of the players on the Columbus Paysetters team after, um, after we were finished is that the lesbian bars in Columbus as well really wanted to buy ad space to support the the team. And at the time, you know, Columbus is where Ohio State is, and they were competing with uh, a pretty big football market for audience. And so what they had in the way that they marketed themselves was family-friendly entertainment, and they were concerned that if they had lesbian bars advertising in their programs, um, that uh, they would no longer be seen as family friendly and it would cut them off from the potential fan base. And um, I will say that one of the coolest things... Um, that I had, I had a twenty, uh, fifteen year anniversary program for the pace setters. They're the only team that ran the full length of the league, and in that program is a full page ad from one of the bars that the uh, originating pace setters had to turn down. And when I saw that, I just thought, like, oh my god, they did it! Like they finally did it. Um, that was like a very cool moment to to see. But, but yeah, um, it was an incredibly important. And I think when you think about, um lesbian bars and gay bars in general as a place where people were safe to be themselves and it was a place for them to form community. The teams um often served much the same purpose as those bars did.
0: Yeah. I, I would also point out a thing that you all talk about in your book, which we don't often, which I have haven't seen very frequently in other histories of women's sport, um, is the way in which these teams were also uh, safe havens for people whose body types maybe didn't match the ideal as well. Um, so can you talk maybe a little bit about how th- these places were uh, good sites for people who were facing fat phobia and things like that? Is as-
1: Absolutely. Um, the thing about football and like all sports, if you look at the Olympics, I, I feel like every Olympics, one of um, one publication does the guess which one's an Olympian. And it's like, surprise, it's all of them yeah. um, because like different sports, <laughs> different bodies are good at different sports. And football is one of those sports where a wide range of body types are required and. Um, and our assets. You need smaller people to be running backs and you need larger people to be linemen. Um, And so a lot of the women who came out and who were used to being seen as undesirable or unattractive or um, even like butch or like masculine, right? Um, These... These things that made them um, objects of ridicule in society, or things that, like you know, made them um, uh, more undesirable from a societal perspective, actually made them huge assets on the football field. And so it absolutely was a place. Some of the women talk about the way they were able to accept their size for the first time because their size was the reason that they could do what they could do on the field. And, you know, when you're executing a tackle, the same woman who walks down the street and people might hurl like slurs about her size, or the same woman who the newspapers like, mocked and said she needed weight watchers and, like, focused on how large she was. Everyone on the field, her opponents, were terrified of her. You know, she was, like, she was the star of that team because she could, uh, you know, take people down and nobody could get through or around her. Um, And so, yeah, it was an incredibly um important place for women whos you know um who were were shamed for their bodies or gender presentation in in the world to find like confidence and and self-worth there's i mean there's so much in this book that we could we could talk about one thing that um you
0: all bring up clearly in this part about the birth of the nWFL is its connections with the emergence of title IX and things like that but Um, we can't talk about everything in the book. There's so much good. Um, I actually want to talk about kind of what the conditions of, of the kind of day to day of the NWFL was, because there was a kind of, or just as a wide range of people played there, I think there was a range of condition as well. Like some teams were more well-managed than others. um, And there were some people who were genuine superstars like Linda Jefferson, um, who I'd never heard of, but then I'm Googling, you know, um, So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, who, who, what was it like for these women kind of traveling um, sometimes pretty great distances, oftentimes, you know, not super long distances, but all pretty regularly and frankly, practicing a lot.
1: (laughs) I think when we say professional football league, people have an image of what professional sports looks like. And this was not that when we say professional, the reason we are saying professionals because they labeled a professional and they got paid to play at some point, (laughs) (laughs) the players were making about $25 a game until most of the team's money ran out. And then they were playing for nothing, um, towards the end of some of these teams, they weren't even insured anymore. And that's how badly these women wanted to play. Um, I also think that when we say professional sports, there's a certain idea of the quality of play that we're going to see. And I would liken this football to like, maybe high school level. And I want to be very clear that the reason is not because they were women. (laughs) The reason is that if we think about even now, very few girls and women play football. But in nineteen you know the the nineteen seventy one is when the troopers started, right? We're talking pre Title Nine. There's no pipeline for girls to learn to play football, right? The most experience playing football that these women had was playing pickup games with their brothers in in the street outside their homes, you know. Um, Many of them were athletes. Um, we have people in this book, you know, Jan Hines, who's the the quarterback um of the Oklahoma City dolls, was on the first Title IX um softball uh team at the University of Oklahoma, right? These these women were athletes. Uh Linda Jefferson, who you mentioned, um, she <laughs> she like retired with um you know more touchdowns than like O.J. Simpson, like Jim Brown, Walter Payton, like Linda Jefferson is incredible. These women were athletes and many of them played other sports. And so they were quick studies. They picked up the game, but what they are doing is they are learning the fundamentals of the sport from scratch as adults. And then they're practicing for a few months and then they're going to play their first professional football game. Um and so that context is really important it's not that their skill was lacking it's that they didn't have the the resources to develop those skills earlier and the the other thing that um this league really had was um the skill level of the players and the teams was not, like, equal across the board. And there was a few reasons for that. There were teams like the Troopers. You know, there's a reason they went, like, 61-4 and over nine seasons or whatever it is. And um, they were really well organized, and they had um, really good coaches, and they had more money than some of the other teams did. Um, some of the other teams, like, literally are being coached by someone's husband or by the women themselves in some cases, they're women who have never played football and they're coaching themselves, right? They're teaching themselves how to play the game when they're, they, they don't even really know how. Um, and so those disparities really come out when you look at, um, you know, the the quality of the play as well. Um, but it should tell you something about how badly these women wanted to play football. Um they're working full time jobs, um, pretty much all of them, and then they are playing. And then there's no money left, so then they're investing their own money um, to take rides on crappy buses um, or fly to another city um, to play. Sometimes on you know high school football fields, sometimes in like basically cornfields, like they are playing anywhere that they can um but you know like the Dallas Blue Bonnets were playing in Texas Stadium they shared a home with the Dallas Cowboys people don't realize like literally they played in the same stadium that the Dallas Cowboys played in now they had 3000 people show up which is like not, that is, which is impressive but like in the context of like you know an NFL stadium it's hardly anything um but So you also had that like huge disparity too in the quality of like where they were playing. But like some of them, there was no locker rooms. People were changing in the bus. um, You know, there was no privacy. There was, it was really um, not what you think of when you think of um, professional football.
0: Nonetheless, I mean, they, they seem to put out a good product. I mean, the people who saw it, who had an open mind about it, seem to to enjoy it so i wonder if you can talk us through like you have a the, like your part four is the heyday of the nwfl and part of that is talking through some of the those inequities especially the chapter on the troopers and the demons <laughs> where the troopers just repeatedly brutalize them uh, seemingly but eventually the quality of the game gets pretty good just as the money seems to run out in some way. so i wonder if you can talk a little bit about that heyday like the moment right before some of those fissures that i guess i don't want to call it the successes because it was successful all the way but um just kind of the heights i guess
1: sure um yeah so they formed in 1974 by 1976 there were um i think 12 teams across three divisions um, and that was kind of the most they ever had. And to, to give you a sense for how quickly it really fell apart, um, ni- 1978 was really the last year, um, where you had quite a lot of teams that were able to continue to participate. Um, and then the, like, 79 and early 80s, some new teams pop up and try to give it a go, um, and they're really, really like no money teams at that point. Um, and, you know, by the end of the 80s, it's just it's a few teams playing each other over and over again. It's like the same player starting a new franchise in a neighboring city, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Just really trying to keep it going. Um, but at its height, I mean, you had, like I said, thousands up to three, four thousand people people coming to some of the the games in these early seasons um and that's not nothing um i think that what what drew people there was again this like curiosity right that media came because they wanted to know what this was all about fans came because they wanted to know what this was all about and um as soon as it was no longer a novelty, the the media really stopped covering it, and um, that was was really a problem in terms of being able to access fans. But you're right, people who came in and saw were impressed. Um, they expected much more of a, a gimmick, and that's that's really like not what what they got when they came out. Um, and some of the teams including the troopers had fans who like ran booster clubs for them and helped them fundraise um and sold merch and all of that um for them um and the thing about what when we see this these teams are popping up all over the place because there's a lot of press coverage and so when you read where these teams came from and how they started most of them read coverage of of a team somewhere else right um in 1974 75 linda jefferson of the troopers was voted Women's sport athlete of the year for um billy jean king's women's sports magazine which was supposed to kind of rival sports illustrated she beat out like olga corbett and like chris everett um to win um, this award. And she was on the cover of the magazine Um, and that, you know, publicity. She also, she did like some television appearances. She competed on that ABC all-stars sporting competition. Um, And that kind of exposure really helped um, more teams start. But the problem was that a lot of the teams were started by men who thought that they were going to make a quick buck. Um, And when people didn't come right away and, you know, within like three seasons, they hadn't like made their investment back, a lot of them were not willing to put the money back in. And so these women who were you know, giving everything they had to play this sport and like living out their dream. Um, many of them kind of had the rug pulled out from under them when the men that financed them decided that it wasn't worth it anymore because they weren't going to make any money. Um, and that's kind of where everything starts to fall apart.
0: Yeah, an argument you all make in the book throughout, which I found compelling and very persuasive, is more or less that, they needed more time and they needed more money that they didn't have enough time to generate um, a kind of self-regenerating fan base. And they didn't have enough money to have that time because the owners that they did have didn't, like you say, what we're after a quick buck. And I was sometimes shocked to hear like, you know, two brothers who are basically, you know, 29 and 33 and have <laughs> basically just kind of run of the mill jobs, they invest $10,000 and they start a team and they seem to try, but there's nothing compared to the Roonies or the, you know, of the world who are running, running the Steelers, as you point out. Um, So I guess you could tell, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, uh, you, you detail it in the book, but what, what happened besides just running out of money? And um, I think that's the big thing, obviously, but what, what are some of the other reasons why the league doesn't, um, you know, still exist today?
1: I think the sad thing is that it like it could. So if you look at those those fan base numbers that I'm giving you of 3 to 4,000 people at a game in the the early years of this league and you look at the early years of the NFL, the numbers are comparable. You're getting about the same fans. And so the thing is that men's sports are always given time and money, which are two things that women's sports are never given either of. And so you can look at the history of how, like the trajectory of successful sports leagues. And I think the, N- the NFL is the one we use, you know, the most in this book, 90% of the teams that have existed in the NFL and 90% of the teams that started in the first like 10 years of the NFL failed. People don't talk about that. And so, you know, it took decades before any of these teams were profitable And yet, and they weren't even winning games, not only were they profit, not profitable, they were losing. And you have the owners of these teams continuing to pour money into losing teams that nobody is watching. And eventually, they become successful, right? But it takes time. Um, It's Usually about a decade before um, you see any sort of profit um, from any of these teams. And so even the idea that these men had that they could launch a team and make their money back within two to three years was just – even in a men's league, it just wouldn't happen. It was unrealistic, but we're not talking about a men's league. We're talking about a women's league. And so when it's not successful right away, they decide it's because there's no audience for women's sports and they stop investing money. The reason there's no audience for women's sports is because you don't give the the time for people to become invested in teams. We do. We talk about fandom in this league. I mean in this book. And like fandom develops. there's a a few ways that we see fandom happen. We can think about the Olympics, right? And people, who will come out to support like the women's U.S. national soccer team is a really good example of this. There's a huge fan base for that team, but not as many people watch the National Women's Soccer League where many of those players play full time. And the difference is when they're playing for the national team, there is this national identity that Americans can rally around and root for and they want to root for when you're rooting for a team in a league, you know, you're like, what's a red star, right? I don't know what that is. I have no reason to root for that. Um, and so it, it it's, it, you know, a college is another example. There's built in fan base, right. When you go to a college, um, the other way that, that fandom happens is over generations. My dad was a fan of, you know, the Red Sox. So I am a fan of the Red Sox. These are how fandoms are born. And when you're folding teams, you're not giving people, you know, the, I grew up, people would be like, could be like, I grew up going to Toledo Troopers games. And now I'm going to take my kid to Toledo Troopers games. But that opportunity never, never arises because the, the teams are not given a chance to really build over time. The, the kind of fan base that would be necessary to sustain them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's, um, it's really a shame, too. And I, sometimes when you I, because I joked earlier, I'm not a journalist, but occasionally I do write a little bit. And I often am, end up writing about investment in women's soccer and and why, you know, there should be more equitable pay um, in, in the, the different national federations. And I'm always pointing out to people the amount of money that governments also paid. <laughs> into men's sports and just because oh you know men need to be sporty so of course we invested in that um and we didn't invest in women's sports because that wasn't what they needed <laughs> quote unquote um and people you know now they want to pretend like uh the that the steelers should be worth three billion four billion dollars but they ignore that pittsburgh pays for the stadium and you know um that kind of stuff and got all this tax breaks and the not to mention the, dis- the distribution breaks for the, the, the media. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a whole complex question. Uh, I, I want to have time, Frankie, to let you talk about um, the last chapter of the, of the book, which I thought was really um, excellent as well, because in some ways there's almost a, ter- like, um, I want to call it a tonal shift where you're not talking about um, the NWFL so much anymore. As you start to talk about women's uh, football now, and what that you know, what the possibilities are for the future, and the role that the these women have played intentionally, or as you put it, unwittingly as well, as active unwitting activists. So, what's the legacy of the NWFL, and what's going on with women's football now um, in the U.S.?
1: I mean, women's football now in the U.S. has several semi pro leagues it's very decentralized um it's kind of in some ways in the we see this problem in other sports as well um women's hockey is another one that is sort of trying to figure out what pro leagues look like there's like dueling leagues um and so the talent is sort of spread out and these these leagues I could describe the playing conditions to you, and you—they would be indistinguishable from the the conditions that I write about in in this book. Um, they're still not making any money. Um, they're still fundraising for travel. They're still working full-time jobs. They're still playing in high school stadiums. There's even fewer people at the games. I live in Boston where we have the Boston Renegades who are I'd say the modern modern day Toledo Troopers. They are the best women's football team in the world. Um, and I go to games and there's um, like a hundred people there. Um, and so they are still facing a lot of the same problems that the NWFL faced before them. There are some very direct ties. Um, uh, Mitchy Colette, who played for the Troopers, um, owns the um, Toledo Reign, which is the current women's team so like has sort of single-handedly kept women's football going in Toledo for 50 years um and so you know there are some very direct connections like that but also a lot of you know these teams they don't exist without without the NWFL players who came first um but there's an interesting question to be had. Now there's some people who want the NFL to step in, kind of like the NBA does with the WNBA. And then there's people who do not want that to happen. Um and the reasons for that, um, maybe you can guess, but but I I think first of all, there's the Question hanging over the sport of football right now, anyway, is whether anyone should be playing it the way it um, currently exists, um, with the concussion crisis and um, the fact that it's it's really killing people. Um, And you know, when it comes to women's football, I'd say it's much more it's a little bit more complicated because you start to get into the place of. If you say if you allow men to play this sport still because there's money there and people don't want to stop making that money, but you try to police the way that women play it, like where is the line between paternalistic um, oversight and um, you know the the kind of like sexist worry um, and allowing uh, women to make informed risks and take informed risks with their bodies, right? So it's a it, it's a complicated. Um, Question and the the other thing um, that really is kind of is stopping um, the the growth in a lot of ways is the fact that a lot of the leagues that exist kind of their players that had played in a different league and didn't like the way it was going and a lot of the problems in the league that they didn't like were because there was no funding and no anything you know and um so as long as they're playing under a bunch of different leagues it's going to be really really hard to really like have much um much power and and push but the um WFA, which is the Women's Football Alliance, is the largest league in the U.S. Uh, the Renegades play in that league, and um, they have deals with um, ESPN to air their championship games rather than streaming them on Facebook Live, which is where you could watch them before. Um, they're airing the championship games, I will say. I love that for them, but I watched you know the last season's championship game, and they were airing on ESPN, but like none of the camera equipment and stuff must have been provided because it's like terrible. You know, you like can barely see the field. I think they're still using the camera that they were streaming on Facebook with, you know, it's um the quality of the broadcast is really not great. And so you're still seeing just like a lack of investment. And it's really the kind of the same story, um, just a different decade.
0: That's unfortunate. Um, it, you're, Your discussion in the the book and here about the difficulty of whether or not you bring in the NFL or not, you all um, compare it to the NBA and the WNBA. In Australia, there's an interesting parallel with women's soccer where for a long time there was an independent women's soccer federation that was actually, I don't want to say profitable, but that was self-sustaining. And there were, there were problems in the men's league, which was uh, much larger in some ways and cost a lot more money. And so it was not profitable as well, but not sustaining. So they had a government commission um, to kind of figure out what to do about professional soccer in Australia. And one of the outcomes of that commission was that they rolled women's soccer on their men's soccer, even though they had this independent women's federation. <laughs> And so the consequences for a lot of women now um, is become much more professionalized and the Matildas are amazing. And in some ways they're kind of the, the shop window for women's uh, soccer um, in Australia, certainly in their popular brand internationally, but on the local level and on the lower level, it's resulted in less investment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, that's yeah. fascinating.
1: I think too, that what people don't realize, like, the idea of the NFL just kind of like stepping in and, you know, absorbing these leagues and making them one league. I think actually women's soccer in the U S is a good place to show how a lot of the, the national women's soccer league teams that are owned, have male owners that are owned by, you know, um, uh, people who also have men's teams, um, the rates of abuse are like rampant, right? We can see there's been this huge abuse scandal in women's soccer in the U.S., and I think also just like post Title IX, you had an increase in women's sports, but you also now have an increase of women who are being like abused and and harmed because if you take a system that was designed by men for men and you blanket put it over women. Like you are, and you're not changing anything about the like patriarchal and oppressive structures that went into forming that league. You're basically setting up a system for harm because you're putting something that was designed for men and just like. Assuming that a blanket will will you know um, work for women as well, and what you end up doing is actually like setting them up for real harm and abuse. Um, and so, I don't think, for a lot of reasons, that the answer is for a men's league to just kind of step in and make um, you know a women's version of a men's league because. That's, you know, never going to be a solution. The men's leagues are broken. As we can see, like the NFL, people are dying. There's more concussions like this season than there's ever been. It's disproportionately affecting, you know, black men. Um, Do we want a league who that's how they're running that league? What are they going to do with a women's league?
0: Yeah, a a league driven primarily by a profit motive rather than by um, some other values, (laughs) which I think we lost. (laughs) Um,
1: right. And I think the reason that a lot of women's leagues tend to be more progressive, like socially, like in a lot of ways is because they have to be because the women on the field are already marginalized by by nature of their gender, at least. And, you know, often they have other marginalized identities as well. But also, not only are they used to being marginalized in some way off the field, they're also marginalized as athletes by nature of their gender. And so the act of them playing is kind of already an act of resistance. And so you, like, anyway, right? And so you see women's leagues being a lot more progressive in a lot of ways. And I think that's because the fact that they exist at all is already, like, you know um, is already going, going against the status quo.
0: Frankie, it's been really great. I, I, I can't believe we're just bringing up resistance <laughs> right now. Um, but the, in some ways the, the book is a story of resist, of resistance, um, a, as a whole. And it's, it's really like, I, like I just want to emphasize again, it's really, for me, was a great combination of just readability. Like the fact that, your you all are journalists really um comes through because it's very readable it's very approachable it's very personal like it's it's um people forward so we as readers get the stories of these of these women um which is great but it also for me as an historian like i didn't feel like i missed out on any of the kind of methodological incisiveness i I really enjoyed it from that point of view too and so people who are listening who teach classes and sport history, this one is one to pick up and strongly consider, especially since there's so few, um, so few full books, which are really great about, um, women's sport that are maybe not the ones that you suspect, um, right. This is not one that people would suspect and I think can really raise questions about football as well as women's sports more generally. I. I I always end, Frankie, and maybe I don't want to ask you to speak for Lindsay, but um, maybe you can tell us as well if you know about any of Lindsay's things. But I always the last question I always ask is, what do we have to look forward to next? You all are writing all the time, but is there any big project on the back burner that we can look forward to?
1: Um, I don't know if Lindsay has any big projects on the back burner. I am trying to hopefully eventually sell another book, a very different <laughs> personal essay collection, so not journalism and not sports. Um, but that is my next long-term goal. But I am writing, um, I'd say, all of the time. I, I slowed down a little over the last year after the book came out, but I'm picking up again, and, and that work um, is always, always ongoing.
0: Well, uh, I think we'll all look forward to the personal essays, too. We read, I read other stuff. I imagine most of my readers and listeners read other stuff as well. Um, Hopefully, it can't just be sports history all the time.
1: (laughs) I mean, it can be. (laughs) It
0: can. There are times when that's pretty true, but (laughs) not always. Thank you so much, Frankie, for for joining us. Uh, You all have been listening to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Rathbone, uh, coming to you live from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. We've been speaking today with Frankie de la Cretes, a sports journalist whose work focuses on the intersection of sport and gender. And Frankie is the co-author with Lindsay Dargangelo of a book that you should all pick up, as I mentioned, called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. It's out with bold type books in 2021. Thank you, Frankie, for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you all for listening.